Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Well, we have completed the Christmas season. I got home from Florida last night, and the, and the Christmas tree was gone. Yeah, I know. That's how I felt about it. Some of my grandchildren have been shedding a tear over the, the loss of the Christmas tree. Yeah, I, I feel it. I understand. Well, Christmas and, the East, Christmas and Epiphany are now uh, in the past. They're behind us, and we're in that liminal in-between space between... The end of the Christmas season and the beginning of Lent. And that's a six-week space this year. And so here's what I have in mind. During these six Sundays between the end of Christmas and the beginning of Lent, I want to preach on the beginning of the good news. I think we could still stand for some more good news. Okay, so that's my plan. I want to preach on the beginning of the good news. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Remember, Perry, when we were in Galilee back in March, that was when we knew this was going to be a big deal, this pandemic. We were hearing about it when we were in New Zealand, but then we got over to Galilee and we thought, well, this is, I think this is going to be a thing. And, uh, well, we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and except for one Sunday, five out of those six Sundays, uh, the sermons will come from the Gospel of Mark. In recent years, I have really come to love Mark, the Gospel of Mark. You know, for a long time, Mark was kind of, you know, it was the, it was the most dismissed of the four Gospels. People thought of it kind of as like Matthew Light or something like that. Um, but that's not the case at all. You have to keep in mind that despite the arrangement in our New Testament, Mark was the first gospel written, and that's a big deal. I mean, that's significant. Mark was the first to pen a gospel. And the gospel of Mark moves at a breathless, almost reckless pace. It just comes careening at you, the gospel of Mark. Mark has good news to tell us, and he's going to tell it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. There's nothing superfluous. He, just, he wants to tell you as much as he can, as quickly as he can. Think of Mark as a messenger who has run a great distance because he has good news. And he arrives out of breath, but he doesn't wait to catch his breath. He gets our attention and he says, listen... The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm going to call this sermon today, Thunder in the Desert. Now Mark's opening statement, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is not an innocuous introduction as you might suppose. Oh no, it's a shot across the bow. Mark is writing his gospel probably during the 
reign of the Emperor Vespasian, probably writing it in Rome. And anyone living in the Roman Empire at that time would, it would have, it would, they would have caught their breath. That Mark would say what he just said. Now, why is that? Well, all across the Roman Empire, there were inscriptions upon public buildings. You know how you know, we still do that. There were inscriptions engraved upon public buildings all across the Roman Empire that said this, the beginning of the good news of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. People would have seen that all the time. The beginning of the good news of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God. It meant that the reign of the divine and august Caesar who was the son of Julius Caesar, who they had already began to call a god. Okay, Julius Caesar is the first Caesar of the Roman Empire. And now he has his son, who is uh, reigning. So who is, who is this august Caesar? He is the son of God. And the idea was that with, with the coming of the Roman Empire, it was a new beginning for the world. A beginning of grandeur and glory and peace and prosperity. This is the language of empire. Empires always talk about themselves in that way. That when we began, oh, when we began, the light came. When we began, you know, freedom came to the world. When we began, that's when everything began to really be blessed. This is the language of empire then and now. But Mark knows better. Mark says... He knows better. And so he says this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Not Caesar Augustus. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. When the Jewish people were still in exile in Babylon, remember they'd lost everything, carried off to a foreign land. When the Jewish people were still in exile, the prophet Isaiah announced that, hey, soon you're going to go home. Soon you're going to go home. And someday, God's going to come. So it's kind of two announcements. Well, on the one hand, hey, all of you exiles, all you Jewish exiles here in Babylon, I got good news. Soon you're going to go home. And then someday, God is going to come to us. After we've got back home, someday, doesn't say when, he says, soon we're going home, and then someday God's going to come. Because of this, the prophet Isaiah says, so we've got to prepare the way. In the wilderness, we've got to prepare the way. Let's, let's, uh, let's make all the hills low. Let's fill up the valleys. Let's straighten out the crooked paths. Let's smooth out the rough places. Let's make, a, let's make it easy for God to come. Of course, the prophet is a poet. 
He's working with metaphor. He doesn't think that God actually needs a nice, you know, interstate highway to actually show up. What he's saying is, let's bring about repentance and moral reformation in our lives. Where we're too proud, you know. Let's come down. Where we're debased, let's come up. Where we're crooked, let's straighten it out. Where we're rough in our ways, let's smooth it out. Let's make it easy for God to come to us. That's what the prophet Isaiah begins to announce, that through repentance and moral reformation, they should prepare the way of the Lord. And then the Old Testament ends. The very end, the last two verses of the last chapter of the last book there in Malachi, the Old Testament ends with a prophecy that the messenger who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, that is the Messiah, is Elijah. That great and scary prophet. That Elijah, who's been gone from the scene for the longest time, is somehow going to return and prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. But by the time we're in Mark, oh, it's been a very long time. It's been, a, it's been centuries. Okay, Isaiah had said, soon we're going home. And they did. And then he said, someday God's going to come. But as far as they could tell, it hadn't happened yet. And centuries have gone by, and they're still waiting. So let's get caught up where we are in Mark 1. It's the, it's the 15th year of the, re, of the reign of Caesar Tiberius. Herod Antipas, this is the son of Herod the Great, is the tetrarch of the region of Galilee. He, they call him a king. He's not, he doesn't really, isn't really given the title king, but they still kind of think of him that way. But if he's a king at all, he's the puppet king for, for the Roman Empire, for Tiberius. So he's the tetrarch of the region of Galilee, if you want to be proper about it. The Roman governor of Judea is a cruel man by the name of Pontius Pilate. The Jerusalem elite, that is the rich and powerful in Jerusalem, are colluding with Rome. The high priest Caiaphas is corrupt. The religious leaders of the temple are compromised. The common people are suffering. And the pious are disappointed. They are being taken of, they're being taken advantage of both economically and spiritually. They're being manipulated by the powers that be. And so it's a time of a mixture of both hope and despair, despair and hope. They're despairing because it seems like everything's gone wrong. With Tiberius and Herod and Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas and all of the, the rich and elite being corrupt and colluding and it's unjust. And so there's a lot of despair, but there's still hope because they have the promises of God. Because they still hold to the words of the prophet and there's hope that God will somehow act. Now at this time, 20 miles east of Jerusalem out in the desert... Jerusalem, you know, you, you, you'd be surprised. They, they give as much rain as London. I, every time I've been in Jerusalem, it seems like it rains. It's always raining there. But you go 20, just 20 miles east and you're in the desert. 
Very different. 20 miles east of Jerusalem, out in the desert, by the river Jordan, there is a prophet, a young man. And he's beginning to preach, and his preaching is thunder in the desert. He's not polite. He's not refined. But you cannot ignore him. And he's not preaching in the metropolis. He's not preaching in the temple. He's out in the middle of nowhere. I suppose he starts preaching to no one, and then there's one, and then one tells somebody else, and then there's two, and then there's 20, and then there's 200. And then pretty soon we hear that everybody's coming out from the cities, from Jerusalem and other cities. They're coming out to the wilderness. John's not coming to them. They've got to come to him. And they are coming. And he's preaching a message of repentance. He's telling them, you need to straighten up. He stresses economic justice. That's a big part of his message. And he says, you got to reform your ways. you got to rethink things. you got to change the way you're living. And if you do, God will forgive you. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And guess what? People respond. He was quite well known, this prophet out in the wilderness, this voice that is thunder in the desert. Josephus talks far about him, more about him than he does Jesus. He was very well known. People are responding. Multitudes are, they're being baptized. And I'll tell you what's going on. The, the baptism is, it's, you know, it's a symbol. But it's a symbol of a lot of things. It's a symbol of, yes, washing away sins. It's also a symbol of a, a new beginning. But it's also the reason, see, John could have baptized anywhere, but no, he's going to baptize at the Jordan. Why? Because he wants to reenact people re-entering the promised land. He said, way back when, you know, Moses led us to the border. Joshua led us across. And we were to be the people of God, but we haven't been faithful. But now we're going to repent. We're going to change our ways. And we're going to re-enter the promised land. And this time we're going to be faithful. We're going to be the people of God. We're going to live up to our high calling. That's all what's going on in this baptism. Now this guy that's doing this preaching and baptizing is John. John the son of Zechariah. He's known for his baptizing. So he's called John the baptizer or John the Baptist. This is the one we heard about during Christmas. That was the son of Zechariah the priest, and his mother was Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Mary were cousins. And so Jesus and John are some kind of cousins, they're relatives. And he's out there in the wilderness, and he's preaching, and he's gaining notoriety. He comes from a priestly family, but he never followed his father into the priesthood. He's a prophet out in the desert. And common people and notorious sinners alike are coming reforming their ways, being baptized, receiving forgiveness. The whole country is talking about this. And that's when a delegation of priests from the temple was sent to investigate. So they show up in their priestly attire. They're not there to hear John preach. They're not there to be baptized. Oh, no, they're going to refuse all of that. They're there to investigate. And John is there in the Jordan, and he's baptizing, and he sees those guys. And he does not say, well, welcome. So good to have you in our service today. He said, you bunch of snakes. <laughs> you brood of vipers. What are you doing here? 
Somebody tell you to flee the wrath to come because it's coming. I mean, the axe is laid at the root. He was, he was that kind of guy. And they said, well, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you claiming that you're the Messiah? He says, I am not the Messiah. Well, are, are, you, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. Who are you then? I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. My message is I'm not the one, but the one who is the one is about to come, and you better get ready. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather jacket, no, leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist is the one who is to come. He is Elijah. Jesus says so. He is the one that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He dresses like Elijah. He acts like Elijah. He's rude and crude like Elijah. He lives out in the wilderness like Elijah. He's not dependent upon the corrupt economy of Rome and the colluding Jerusalem elite. He just lives out in the wilderness. Finds an old camel hide and says, I'll wear that. Comes up with a belt, a leather belt. That's about all he has to wear. What does he eat? Locusts. Grasshoppers. It's kosher. <laughs> and why, I remember Tom Phillip ate a grasshopper just to freak out his cousins. And it worked. It did freak them out. John the Baptist eats locusts. And when he can find some wild honey, he has dessert. He's sustained by God. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Well, we're just coming out of Christmas time, so you know the story. It's fresh in your mind. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And the Holy Family lived in Bethlehem for probably a couple of years. But then... When Herod launched his attack upon the baby boys, trying to destroy any claim to the throne of David, the Holy Family fled into Egypt, and they were there until the death of Herod the Great. After Herod the Great had died, they returned and then moved to Nazareth up in Galilee. So that Nazareth becomes the childhood Boyhood, adolescent, young adult home of Jesus. Jesus is about 30 years old now. He's the son of the carpenter, a builder. He has followed in that vocation. He too is a carpenter and he's a builder. But when he hears the news of his relative, John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who has now earned the moniker, the baptizer, when he hears what he's doing, he goes to him. Jesus goes from Nazareth to 
the Judean wilderness and the Jordan River. It's quite a long journey, be several days' journey. And Jesus arrives and he participates in John's public act of repentance. John is saying, you need to repent. Change your ways. And we're told that this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus wades down into the water and says, here I am, baptize me. Matthew and Luke tell us of John's hesitation. Christians understand the nature of the hesitation because we confess that Christ is without sin. So what's he doing in a, in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin? Well, he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Jesus doesn't stand on the shore and say, well, you're all a bunch of sinners, I guess. You've got a problem. No, he's joined us. And though Jesus will not say, I am a sinner, he can say, we are sinners. Let's repent. And so he goes down in the Jordan and he's baptized by John. And with his baptism, Jesus is immersed into his mission. It's the beginning. The whole series is called The Beginning of the Good News. This is how it begins. With his baptism, that's the demarcation point. If I could say it this way, Jesus has just been the carpenter in Nazareth. He's lived a quiet life. There's no miracles. There's nothing notable. The only story we have between his birth and the beginning of his ministry is when he was 12 and goes to the temple. Other than that, we're not told anything because there's not much to tell. He's just living the ordinary life of a pious Galilean Jew in a small village. But with his baptism, he's immersed into his mission. And what is his mission? What is his mission? What is Jesus here to do now that he's been baptized? Now that he's no longer going to merely be the carpenter of Nazareth? What is his mission? His mission is to announce the kingdom of God, to enact the kingdom of God, to inaugurate the kingdom of God, to establish the kingdom of God. Look at verse, we'll jump ahead for just a second, verse 14. We'll see this again in coming weeks, but verse 14. Now after John was arrested, spoiler alert, John gets arrested. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is that which is not the world. The kingdom of God is that which is not the way it is. The way it's always been. The way that many and most think must always be. Ecclesiastes, you know. That which has been is what will be. That which is is what will be. That, how's it go? That which is... Uh, I didn't plan on that, so I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> no, I won't do it. That which has been is what is. That which is, has been is what will be. Something like that. But, it, but, it's, but it's, it's typical of Ecclesiastes. There's a bit of cynicism in it. It's just, yeah, nothing ever changes. And then it ends that passage with, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, the kingdom of God is something new under the sun. The kingdom of God is the announcement, hey, 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 the way we live, the way we've always lived, the way the world is arranged, there's another way. God is coming among us 
to give us an alternative way of living, an alternative society. Instead of a society, and see, John knew this is why he preached on this stuff. Instead of a society that's based primarily on greed and violence. These are the two things that John critiques in his sermons. Forms of greed and forms of violence. John says, you got to repent of that to prepare for the coming. Because the kingdom is an alternative society from heaven that is not based upon greed and violence, or you could, if you want to use pagan gods, and based on mammon and Mars. It's not based on that. But it's based, first of all, around the Lord's Messiah. And it's established around the idea that human beings can live out of generosity and trust. Instead of greed and violence, it's generosity and trust. And now Jesus introduces it when he begins to preach. You can read it in the Beatitudes, which is the preamble to the constitution of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom of God. That's the constitution I carry anything about. Is the constitution of the kingdom of God delivered by Jesus Christ on the, at the Sermon on the Mount. So instead of a violent kingdom of Caesar, we are offered a peaceable kingdom of Christ. And Jesus says, hey, you've been waiting, you've been waiting, you've been waiting. Guess what? It's right here. It's within reach. It's come. It's now. Believe this good news. Repent. Change your ways. Rethink everything. Say, all right, all right. The way I've been living, I now know I don't have to live that way. I'm going to change. I'm going to rethink everything. And I'm going to believe that it's possible because most people don't believe. Most people think the way the world is, is the way it has to be. Even people that confess that they're Christians. They say, well, you know, when Jesus comes again. See, that's how you kick the can down the road. Someday, someday, someday Jesus will come back and then, then we'll start to live this kingdom stuff. Jesus says, it's right here within grasp. It's within reach. Come on, reach out and take it and believe this good news. See, people get, people get afraid because they think the kingdom is bad news. It's not bad news, it's good news. The alternative is good. All right, back to, back to Jesus' baptism. Verse 10. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove. On him. So Jesus goes down into the Jordan. He's baptized by John the Baptist. And as he's coming up out of the water, the heavens are torn open. Schizo, like schism. Rent. It's, it's a violent word. Tearing. It's the same word that's used to talk about what happens to the veil in the temple when Jesus died. It was torn asunder from top to bottom. So the heavens are torn open. It's, it's a violent word depicting a violent action, an action performed by God. And this tearing open of the heavens is at last, at long last, the answer to Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah said, oh, God, we need you to come. We need you to come. I've been prophesying that you're going to come, but, God, you need to come. Oh, God, that you would just rip the heavens and come down. This is the answer to that prayer. This signals 
a divine invasion from heaven. The world has been as the world has been. And Jesus will later say it's under the rule of the Satan. The ruler of this world, that dark Lord. But now there's an invasion. It's D-Day from heaven. And the heavens are torn violently asunder, ripped open. And how does the Spirit come from heaven? Does it come as an eagle? A bird of prey? A war eagle? No. There's this violent ripping and then a dove. Not a smart bomb, not a missile, not an eagle, a dove. The Spirit of God does not come as a war eagle, but as a peaceable dove. Now, there were lots of eagles around those days. And I'm using symbol as Mark is using symbol. There were the, there were the uh, eagles on all of the Roman standards, the battle standards. Yeah, that's, what, that's one right there. SPQR, sent in people of Rome, and that was their symbol, this eagle with arrows. And every time they went anyway, if, you, if you're living in Galilee or you're living in Judea, you're just, you know, trying to make your life, you're just trying to worship God and be faithful, and you see that come marching into town, you go, uh-oh, the Romans are here. And they're here, and they're going to talk about peace and freedom, and they're going to steal all our stuff and make us slaves. Later on, Jesus would say, he would give a cryptic prediction of what was going to happen to Jerusalem. He says, because it's so corrupt, it's like a corpse. And where the corpse is, the eagles gather. And it's a cryptic prophecy of what happens in AD 70 when the, when the uh, Roman 10th legion comes with all the eagles and surrounds the city. What we have here is a violent tearing open of the heavens, but instead of an eagle, a dove. Because if an eagle comes, it's just, it's just the same as it's always been. This is what Pharaoh does. This is what Nebuchadnezzar does. This is what Alexander the Great does. This is what Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and all the Caesars do. If we tear open the heavens and mm, war eagle, nothing, nothing changes. We tear open the heavens and a dove. It's the same kind of thing that you see in the book of Revelation. When John the Revelator is weeping because there's no one found worthy to break the seals and unloose the, unleash the purposes of God in the earth, and the elder says, stop weeping. The lion, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome, and he looks, and there's no lion, there's a lamb. So there's this violent tearing open the heavens, but it's not a war eagle, it's a dove that comes. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And so now we see at the baptism of Jesus the Holy Trinity. The Father tears open the heavens. The Spirit comes like a dove, the Holy Spirit. And Jesus of Nazareth is proclaimed the Son of God. Here's an icon of it. So there's Jesus. He's standing in the Jordan, which is also symbolic of standing in death. Because he is Emmanuel that's eventually going to join us in death, that he might liberate us from the reign of death. There's Jesus in the Jordan. 
John's baptizing him. I don't know if you can see it, but at the very top, there's the hand of God that's ripping the heavens. And now the Spirit is coming. And coming down upon Jesus. This is, this is Jesus. This is, how he, this is the beginning of the good news. Because he's going to go from here and he's going to announce an act, inaugurate, establish the kingdom of God. How much different is it than this? That's, that's the kingdoms of this world. And that's how they say we're going to bring about justice and freedom and goodness and all of that kind of propaganda. And they always got their eagles with them. They always, you know, have their military parades. This is, you know, a historic depiction of there's the Parthenon and there's the Colosseum and there's the standard Senate people of Rome and their eagle. The kingdom, the kingdom of God does not come like that. It does not come like that. It comes like that. That's how it comes. And Jesus says, believe this good news. That it comes like that. This is the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And it's nothing less than an invasion from heaven, but it's an invasion of love. Of grace, of mercy, of peace, of forgiveness, of salvation, of healing, of newness. And here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we are told that Jesus is the Son of God and that He's pleasing to the Father. We hear these words again at the Transfiguration as we begin the final portion of Jesus' ministry. This is the beginning. This is my beloved son. And then we'll hear it again on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus begins the end of his ministry. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father is pleased with Jesus because Jesus reveals the father. That's what brings pleasure to the father is that the Father looks at Jesus and He says, that is revealing who I am. The Father sees Himself and the Son says, that's who I am. That's me. And it brings Him pleasure. Today we see the beginning of the good news and it begins with Jesus' baptism. I called this sermon Thunder in the Desert, tying it in with what John the Baptist was doing, but I could have entitled it Of Hawks and Doves, How the Kingdom Comes. I just thought of that one this morning. It was too late, you know. All the slides and everything are all printed up. That's the alternative title. Of Hawks and Doves, How the Kingdom Comes. And so let me give you an invitation. Let me know, let me let you know that the Father at Jesus' baptism says you are my son, the beloved, I'm well pleased. You are invited also to become the sons and daughters of God. We heard that in our gospel reading last week. To as many as received Jesus, even to those who believed on his name, to them is given the power to become the sons and daughters of God. So what, what do you do? You believe. You believe on you say, I believe in Jesus. 
And as soon as you can, we're not doing it right now, but as soon as you can, you get baptized. And then you begin and continue and keep on just following Jesus, following Jesus, following Jesus, living more and more deeply into your baptismal identity that you are the daughters and the sons of the living God. And that you're here to reflect the glory of God in the world. And this brings so much pleasure. God loves you. And God doesn't want you under the dominion of the powers of darkness any longer. The Spirit is inviting you into this kingdom where Christ is the king. And love is the way and peace is the outcome and sins are forgiven and healing is common and present among us. This this is the kingdom that Jesus brings. And he invites you into it to be a part of it. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the river Jordan proclaimed him your beloved son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit, grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns. One God in glory everlasting. Father, we do pray that you would help us to live according to our baptismal identity. With our baptism, we've left this world behind. With our baptism, we say, no, no, that's not my country. That's not my identity. That's not the kingdom I belong to. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of the heavens. My allegiance is to my Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us now to just to keep following Jesus. When we fall, we we get up. We receive your forgiveness. We receive your mercy and we press on. Help us, Lord, here at Word of Life Church, locally and online, in person and online. Help us to become true followers of Jesus. May we be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century. May we be an anticipation of the age to come. May we embody the reign of Christ here and now. Help us to be the daughters and sons of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Join with me in confessing now the central aspects of our Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, Jesus Christ was without sin, but we are sinners. 
We're sinners and saints simultaneously living in that tension. But we're told that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we're told that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sins, you know, day by day. But there's something about, you know, together on Sunday morning. Yes, we have failed to live perfectly, but we know the mercy of God is there for us. So just before we receive the sacrament of communion, join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.